Hello and welcome to Access Chat. I'm really delighted today to welcome Megan McLean, who is the SVP for Sports for 2022 Special Olympics. Megan, great to have you with us. Uh, yeah, thanks you, for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about the Special Olympics for those of the, those of us that that don't know about it? Obviously, we're in the Olympic period right now. Paralympics to follow. So, so what are the Special Olympics for those of our audience that don't know? Yeah, so the Special Olympics is a, a global organization that's active in over 190 countries. Um, and we are an organization that offers sport training and competition to people with intellectual disabilities. Um, and actually, Special Olympics is one of three organizations that has the right to use the, the word Olympics or Olympic uh, in their organization title. So that's obviously the Olympics, the Paralympics, and the Special Olympics. Um, and as I mentioned, active in over 190 countries and specifically, um, my organization, which is the 2022 Special Olympics USA Games, is the local organizing committee for the, the national event that will take place in June of 2022 for athletes from uh, across North America to come and compete in 20 different sports. Fantastic. And um, yeah, we, we're always interested in, in sports and, 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 and sports are a great way of, of of bringing people together and, and including people. And uh, I've been a big fan of the, the Olympics and Paralympics and kind of have to be working where I do because the, the organization that Antonio and I work for is um, is the main IT partner for, for the Olympics and Paralympics. But um, so obviously it's a, it's a difficult time to be running games right now. Um, so, so have some of the you know, so what was what are the some of the logistical challenges that that, that COVID thrown at you um, presented in terms of what you're planning for 2022, and also are there any kind of special considerations that you need to make uh, for your athletes in terms of um, you know, safeguarding and making sure that we you know we keep the athletes and the audience safe uh, during these times. Yeah, COVID, just like every other live event organization, has had a, a big impact on, on our planning. Um, I joined the team at the beginning of 2020, and a big part of my role is venue development. So that's getting into the 10 different sport venues that we're going to utilize for games and work on the layout, development, uh, how the people are going to move through the venue, how the uh, equipment's going to be placed. So initially, that was the, the first biggest impact was we couldn't get into any of these venues. Um, so we were relying on Google Earth and CAD drawings and doing a lot of that virtually. Um, we're sort of through that phase because venues have reopened and we've been able to transition to live site visits. So that's been uh, a really a beneficial thing for us in our planning. But uh, constantly what we're talking about is the health and safety of our athletes. Um, a lot of our athletes have other medical challenges that put them in an, a higher risk category uh, with COVID-19. So we are constantly having conversations about how to keep our athletes safe. And you know, just as the whole world is watching and we thought we were sort of in the clear and on the other side of this being in Florida, which is a, a hot spot right now, those conversations are uh, becoming once again, more frequent. And uh, we're, we're really lucky that Florida has been a, a, a place where a lot of sport organizations have come during the COVID era to host competition. The NBA was here uh, 
in 2020 and they had their bubble season at wide world of sports, which is where we're hosting a majority of our sports. Uh, Major league soccer was there. Um, there's just been a lot of organizations that have a lot of resources to figure out how to do this safely. And they've done it in the same spaces that we are going to be hosting our competition. So ideally uh, we wouldn't have to make any changes in 10 months. We would hope that we're on uh, in a better situation to not have to to be as concerned about COVID. But if that is the case, we have a lot of really good models to look to, um, to understand what their policies and procedures were to keep the athletes safe. Um, Because as I mentioned earlier, that's our number one priority is the athlete experience. And if the athletes aren't safe and well, obviously there is no uh, positive experience that can be had. And, and Megan, I, I know that I was really blessed to interview you on my show, Human Potential at Work, but we're talking about the U.S. games. Mm-hmm. So do you mind just explaining about how that's different from other Special Olympic games? Because anyone that might not be familiar with the Special Olympics, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, you know, you have games in other different countries and then mm-hmm. it, they come together, if I'm if I'm correct. Would, would you just explain a little yeah. bit of how, how that worked in? You are representing the United States and this it's happening this year. I mean, this event would supposedly is happening in Florida, but it's mm-hmm. like others in that it moves around through our different countries and in countries. So I was wondering if you'd just explain that a little. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, a global organization and, and how it's governed is the organization is broken into seven regions um, and our region is North America. And then North America is broken into the countries that are a part of North America, each country having a program. And then uh, in the United States, it's broken down to the state level. So every state in the United States uh, plus D.C., And actually, California is split into two separate programs just because of their size and and population. So every state has a program um, where they're offering training and competition to athletes year round and they compete at the local level, um, typically the regional level within the state and then at the state level. And that's happening annually every year in every state. Um, And then every four years, they come together for the USA Games. And that follows a a bid process, just like a lot of other major sport events where a local program, in this case, it was when I was with still with Special Olympics Florida, where I was working previously, we put a bid in to host this event and we won that bid. And that's uh, why it's happening in Orlando. In 2026, they're going through the bid process now uh, to identify what state will host the next USA Games in 2026. And then beyond the USA Games, following an Olympic pattern every two years, alternating summer and winter, uh, Special Olympics International hosts the World Games. Um, so that's sort of the, the pinnacle of competition within Special Olympics is the World Games. Uh, most recently, they were held in Abu Dhabi for the Summer Games in 2019, and they will be in Russia um, next year. It was supposed to take place in 2021 in Russia, but given the way everything is, they actually delayed it a year uh, and the event will take place just before ours for the winter world games. Um, so there's competitions happening every day, really, uh, for Special Olympics at varying levels uh, and varying sizes. And I'll even say that even a little bit more, which I love about what Special Olympics is that within the states, 
they're in the counties mm-hmm. and, and there are so many games that I know I'm very proud that my daughter, Sarah, um, who was born with Down syndrome, she's in a, a she was a special Olympic athletes, che- cheerleading, baseball is really softball, I guess, bowling, swimming. Um, and we had talked about it on my show, but she, um, she was always a sort of a casual um, participant. Mm-hmm. So she never, it, it's a very competitive situation. And I think people don't understand that. They sometimes think, oh, it's so sweet. And it, and everybody can participate, but this is true competition. And that, because I know that we, my daughter wanted to play softball, but only halfway. And she, mm-hmm. she really wasn't committed enough to this. So we put her in a different kind of league where it was what we would consider a fun, not the special Olympics isn't fun, but I just want the audience to understand this is real competition. This mm-hmm. is real competition. And these athletes are really strong at what they do. So go yeah. ahead. No, that's, that's such a good point. And and what you'll see at the USA Games is all different levels of, of competition. So even within team sports, if we think about basketball, we have different levels that we group the teams together for competition from high level to maybe a little bit of a lower skill level. But all of those athletes within that level are competing at the best of their ability. So they have trained for sometimes years to get to this point in their career so that they can compete. So it's a really interesting dynamic where you'll see all different levels of competition, but every athlete that attends this is is training as hard as they possibly can. They have to qualify to come to these events. It's not um, at all a pay to play model. It's not at all anybody who registers can attend. Um, All of those feel good emotions, the, the joy and the inclusion, all of that comes from the competitive nature of the sport for the athletes. Um, Those are sort of the, the, the smiles and the happiness, that's all secondary to what, what is the heart of this, which is competition. And it's really fun to watch these athletes who have trained for as long and as hard as they have to, to succeed at this level with their families they're watching. And that's where the joy comes from. It's a result of competition. Yes. Yes. Antonio. Oh, uh, thank you, Megan. Uh, so I'm quite curious to, to understand what is the roadmap between uh, between now and the be, the beginning of the, of the games, and also the type of work that you are doing to make sure that the games are fully accessible to to all the to all the to all the the athletes and also to to all the participants, volunteers, and audience in general. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and between now and the games, we're at a, a point in planning where athletes have started to register. So up until now, uh, we've worked with the state programs to uh, determine what athletes they can bring in which sport. So we tell them you can bring two basketball teams, you can bring five swimmers, but two need to be female, three need to be male. So we've gone through that whole process. And now athletes are registering which is the exciting part for my team as a sports team is we actually are going to start to have real data to build schedules, to understand uh, timing. When will the athletes be awarded based on when they're competing? So, so we're really fine tuning schedules right now and, and continuing with our venue development. But from an accessibility standpoint, we are um, faced with a very different situation than any previous USA games in that every games up until this point has been hosted on a college campus. So they have dining hall facilities, uh, dorm facilities for the athletes to um, lodge in, eat in, and and sort of the Olympic Village takes place on a college campus. 
we uh, are not associating these games with a, a college or a university. So it brings different challenges and that dining halls don't just exist. Dorms don't exist. So the athletes are going to be staying in um, Disney resort hotels and having a different style of meal, more catered meals for each of their events, which we really believe will just increase the experience for these athletes. Um, having a, a nice hotel room bed and a cleaning service, as opposed to walking down the hallway uh, to take your shower at the end of a day or competition. So we're really happy to be partnered with Disney because they do accessibility very well. Um, so we're leaning on them for a lot of those facilities. And then just ensuring some of the the sport venues that we've selected for sports that maybe don't have as much experience with that. We're actually kind of helping them with our uh, knowledge to help make some of those things more accessible for everybody. Because, um, you know, you can imagine with more than 10,000 volunteers, we'll have a lot of volunteers that will need those accessibility options as well. Right. I've got a a question and sort of going back to, to right to the beginning. So what we didn't ask you was, how did you come to be involved in the Special Olympics? Because I mean, it's it, it's a it's a great initiative, uh, you know. And, and, and but but what brought you to work in the field? Yeah, so it was sort of I, I when I talked to Deborah on her podcast, I said this the same way. It's that when I was going through it, it felt like I was just bouncing around and and sort of falling into the next thing without any real plan. But when I look back on what the path has been to this point in my career, it actually makes a lot of sense. And I, for me, not to go too far back, and but it really starts with just a love for sport. Uh, I competed in sports my entire life, and I actually uh, played co- uh, college basketball at the University of Delaware. And when I first entered college, the major that I declared was sport management because I knew I loved sports, and that was the way that I knew to stay attached because uh, professional sports, I knew being realistic, were not in my future. Um, so I was the sport management major playing basketball. I actually had my my best friend and my college teammate. Her name is Elena Deladon, and she was an outstanding basketball player um, and ended up at Delaware. She was from Delaware and was on my team. And she has a sister with pretty severe disabilities. And one day she asked if I wanted to go to her sister's school and volunteer. So I, I did that. And it was really um, interesting to say, but I was I was 20 at that point, and it was my first opportunity to really interact with people with intellectual disabilities. And I just felt a calling to do something to support and and be able to work with that population. So I actually went uh, to my academic advisor that following Monday, and I, I shifted gears to special education with a goal to be a special educator. Um, went through that. And, and sort of was feeling a little conflicted about moving away from sport. And I decided that I wasn't going to teach and ended up working in the WNBA for a very brief time. And through that job with the Chicago Sky, I actually was doing some volunteer work with the Special Olympics. And that was the first time my eyes were open to the fact that there's a career in Special Olympics that is this perfect combination of my love for sport and my desire to work with this population. Um, And at that moment, I just applied for a position uh, with Special Olympics Florida, an entry-level position. I got the job, and I moved to Florida and have been here now for eight years in in different roles within the Special Olympics organization. Fantastic. I I think it's it's always nice to hear people's stories as to how they got involved and to understand the the passion and the drivers. And, 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 And oftentimes we... 
you know, there's a familial connection or a personal connection, but but I'm really glad that we, as a community, also welcome people who don't have that, you know, connection to mm-hmm. be part of this community, part of this movement. And I'm really, you know, glad that you chose to to, to be part of this. I know, I, um, and I know that that the the competition is is serious, and and that. Um, that this is um, also the the Special Olympics movement is coming together with the Olympics and the Paralympics movement to 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 celebrate um, something called Winter 15 shortly. And so, so I'm really excited about the fact that that all of these sporting movements are coming together to uh, to celebrate disability visibility and um, and to really uh, highlight the fact that we are all part of you know the the, the the threads in the the fabric of humanity so deborah i know you you had a, a question i just wanted to say thank you for you know for your engagement and 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 for being part of the community i agree and antonio's going to ask a question first and then i'm going to go okay uh, i'm so just picking up in your career and on how you started uh Many things have changed in the last couple of years in the way how we look to you know to the Olympic to the Paralympics to Special Olympics. What are the changes that you have been observing in in terms of the attention that the games have been receiving? Yeah, I, I definitely. In, in my eight year career with Special Olympics, have noticed a lot of changes, and I think that that the biggest ones are just the general awareness of of what Special Olympics is and, and what we do. And a lot of that has come through partners. Uh, in 2018, the USA Games in Seattle were the first time that ESPN actually broadcast the games live. They had some events live on ESPN. They had coverage um, every night on SportsCenter at the Nightly Sports Center, just recapping some of the games. So I think that what Special Olympics has done a really good job of through these events is helping people understand the true sport nature and the highly competitive nature of these events. And that's really brought just your average sports fan to be a fan of Special Olympics. So no longer is it just family members or people who have a a personal tie to the the community of people with intellectual disabilities, but just it's really good sport. Like you can see really, really good competition. So the average sports fan has been drawn to become a part of our organization. And what that's done is it's lifted the organization at all levels because now when a team needs a a coach for their golf team, they're not only looking to the parents of the athletes, the siblings of the athletes, but they're getting local golf pros who are now aware of what organization does and and coaching our athletes with the highest level coaching that is accessible um, to anybody. So I think that awareness piece hasn't just put more eyes on the organization, but it's made the organization better because there's experts across the board that are getting involved and making an impact. I I love that particular example. I, I know that I was asked and my daughter, Sarah, with Down syndrome, we were asked to go and speak at a Special Olympics game in Macau, China. And, mm-hmm. um, it, and it was interesting because my daughter has never played golf, nor have I, a day in her life. But when the athletes were going with all the professionals and they were starting, Sarah, like, grabbed... <laughs> I don't know, a long golf and she's like going to go get in the, the, you know, cart. And they're like, uh, yeah, no, cause she's <laughs> always used to being included. Right. But 
this is very serious. So I, it was just, it was funny. It was like, no, Sarah, you don't understand it. Believe it or not, there's a little bit of skill involved with golf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, just a little bit. I think generally you don't just pick it up and figure it out. But you mentioned, I believe, like 50 types of games. And one thing I think is interesting, I know a lot, obviously, about Special Olympics because it's benefited my family so much. But what are the games? Uh, what are some of the types of things that um, that people might not realize that um, the athletes are, you know, competing in? Yeah. So Special Olympics as an organization has, I think at this point, it's 27 official sports. But within those sports, there's an incredible amount of events. So when you think of track and field, there's the 100 meter, the 200 meter, relays, half marathon. So within those those 27 sports, there's a ton of opportunity of events of varying difficulties for our athletes to train and compete in. But specifically with the USA Games, we're offering 20 sports, 19 official sports, and then uh, e-gaming is actually an exhibition that we're doing just to keep up with the, the trend. Um, and that is every sport you think of when you think of the Olympics with swimming and gymnastics and track and field, the team sports, basketball and soccer. But also uh, there's some really interesting sports that are um, unique to Special Olympics. Competitive bocce is a sport within Special Olympics. It's actually a very popular sport because it is such an accessible sport physically. And then we have some sports that we're offering that are just really near and dear to the, the Florida sport culture. Um, we're going to have surfing competition and stand up paddle competition, which um, some of our athletes are going to race and stand up paddle over 4,800 yards. So it's very, uh, it's an endurance stand up paddle event. Uh, open water swim is something that we'll offer and then also triathlon. So within those, those 19 to 20 sports, when you, when you include esports, there's tons of opportunity for athletes and varying abilities and interests to become involved. But the, the prerequisite really is that they're training and, and working their hardest to be the best they can be when they arrive uh, in market next summer. And, and the athletes are like other uh, Paralympics and um, the other Olympics, too, in that they have to raise their own funds to um, get to the games. Is that true? They 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 support their state programs in uh, the finances to get here. But the way that it's structured is that once the athletes are in market, our organization, the LOC, covers all of their expenses. So that's venue expenses, meals, uh, ground transportation, lodging special events. We have some really, really cool, as you can imagine, being partnered with Disney, uh, oh, Disney yeah. World, some really cool special events. So, but the, the state programs are responsible for their uniforms and their travel to and from Orlando. Oh, so wow. the athletes are asked to become involved in raising those funds, but it's the responsibility of the state program to support them financially in, in both uh, their apparel and their travel to and from Orlando. Oh, that's cool. And then um, I'm going to ask you a really hard question. So I know you're you know it's 10 months away. Um, and we also know that uh, COVID is uh, spiking. Uh, it's, you know, everywhere, but as you said, you're in a hot spot. So how do you hold these games if COVID won't let you do it in person? Yeah, I think that that's something we're constantly talking about. And uh a year ago, we were talking about it every day, and then it was every week, and then every month, and then it kind of went away for a very, very brief window of time. We felt like we were in the clear, which was probably a little bit naive, but uh, we're back to uh, a, a pretty um, significant rise in cases in Central Florida. 
And uh, there's some concern. So we're back to having those conversations every day. It's something that is at the forefront of our minds. Um, we have 10 months, so we have a bit of a runway still to have to make any major decisions, but there's a lot of planning that goes into these events, not on our end necessarily, but on the end of the athletes and their families and, and them having to make plans. So 10 months seems like a really long time. Um, but that window gets shorter and shorter when you take all those things into account. So we are having those conversations now about what this might look like if, if we can't have the event. Um, and, and obviously there's an ability to postpone, there's an ability to go virtual. Right now, we have not uh, really had those conversations because we're remaining hopeful that we're going to be able to host this event in some some format. Because if a really big part of this and why we would avoid wanting to do a virtual event is for our athletes, this is just such an experience that we want them to have. To be able to come to Orlando for 10 days, be independent because they're not traveling with their families. Um, their parents and their families may or may not be coaches with the delegation, but for the most part, these athletes travel as a team, as team Florida, as team Texas, uh, whatever it might be. And just that level of independence that they're get, they get to experience when they come here, meeting athletes from other States uh, is something that is, is just as important, if not the most important thing that these event, this event can offer. So we are really, really pushing for an in-person event, uh, whatever that might look like. I think if things remain the way they are, the 4,300 athletes that we have committed right now, that number may change, may change um, from necessity for capacity reasons, or it may change by choice because some people just don't uh, feel safe traveling and have other um, medical concerns that put them in a high risk category. But our goal is to host an in-person event so that we can have an incredible experience for these athletes and that we are going to do everything we possibly can to make that happen. Yeah. It's just, the times are just, confusing so confusing and as we all know it's funny when people say getting back to normal i don't even know what that means anymore yeah yeah Yeah. i wasn't normal anyway right so uh, so so that's fine um i i guess you know with a large event like that you talked about the mixing of 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 people and, and that being part of the Sort of the benefit for the participants of of you know competing in in the Special Olympics. I mean, some of, some of the stuff that we've seen with the Olympics and the Paralympics has been uh, work on legacy. Do do the the 22, 2022 Special Olympics also do think about the legacy of the games that you're doing and, and have any programs focused on sort of positive results. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and sort of input into the communities post the games as well? Yeah, absolutely. Legacy is something that we talk about all the time and that we're really, really focused on. And what our goal is with this is just to build on the success of previous USA games. They've gotten better every single time an event is hosted. They're they're improved upon. But for us, uh, there's a couple parts to the legacy. And the, the exciting one to talk about is just how we can change the the central Florida region in regard to their inclusion of people with disabilities. Uh, Central Florida is known to be very inclusive. And and we saw a lot of it after the pulse tragedies took place a few years back. Uh, We saw the community come together, but what we're trying to do with this event is to have that response minus the tragedy. We want to use something positive to bring the community together and just really change people's perceptions of what our athletes can do. Um, And I think that through true competition and what they see, 
and and then the joy that they see our athletes, even when they're even when our athletes are losing and and potentially not meeting their goals, um, they still are so supportive of of the other athletes, and that's just something that we think will have a really big impact on the community. And what we really want to do is. Oftentimes you'll hear that organizations like ours are helping to prepare our athletes for the the quote unquote real world to prepare our athletes, to have the skills to go enter the real world. And uh, through a, what we're calling an inclusion revolution, we want people to realize that there is no line between the world that our athletes experience and the real world. It's all one world. Um, so we're trying to erase that, that imaginary line that people are seeing by bringing individuals into our organization and giving them an opportunity to come into our organization to coach um, through our unified sports experience, they can actually compete. So we will have unified sports taking place uh, in almost all of our sports where people with intellectual disabilities are on teams with people who do not have intellectual disabilities and they're competing together. Um, So we're bringing people into the Special Olympics world to show them that there really is no difference between these two spaces where people are having their experiences. So we hope that uh, our games will just open more people's eyes to uh, the fact that this is all one, one amazing world that our athletes are living in. I think uh, here we are talking about athletes that are going to participate the games, but there are clear benefits of everyone to do sport, you know, and I think the games are also a way to call people attention to, yes, maybe my kid or or someone that I know, uh, I could encourage him to do more sport, you know, because we know the reality around the world, not everyone has access to information to be able to practice sport. So I think mm-hmm. the health element for people with disabilities to do sport is, mm-hmm. is particularly important. So how do you see the games as a kind of a beacon to motivate people to be more active? Yeah, absolutely. And the really cool thing about Special Olympics is that an athlete can get involved and can train and compete at no cost to them or their family. So their uniforms, there's no registration fee. There's no uniform cost. These athletes can become involved and, and remain physically active at any level that they choose. So we have some athletes who want to go to world games, compete at the highest level, train every single day for hours. And then we have athletes who just want to be around their friends, stay active. Uh, Their families might want to get them outside more rather than, than sitting on the couch as much as they might be. So there's all of that happening within our world. Um, and I think that, that these games can really be an example of that because people are going to, understand what Special Olympics is a little bit more because of the awareness and the eyes that are going to be on this event. And just for an example, in Special Olympics Florida right now, they're serving over 60,000 athletes, but that is just a fraction of the people living in Florida that have an intellectual disability. And we know that there's still families out there who have a, a person in their family with intellectual disabilities who don't even know what Special Olympics does. So we're hoping that the awareness will help bring those people to be able to compete and participate um, however they they want to. So it doesn't have to be at this extreme level of competition. It can be at, at varying levels, but just athletes moving and competing and, and playing sports. And a, a huge part of what Special Olympics does, and a lot of people, even people who are very familiar with Special Olympics don't know this, but uh, Special Olympics is the largest health care organization for people with intellectual disabilities. So there's an entire program in Special Olympics called the Healthy Athletes Program. And what that does is it allows athletes to get healthcare, see an optometrist, see a dentist, see a podiatrist. 
So while our athletes are here, all 4,300 of them in, in June of 2022, they will have the ability to go through health screenings in seven different disciplines to see an eye doctor and actually get prescription glasses or sport goggles if they need them to see a podiatrist and, and understand if they're wearing the right size shoe. And the data shows that I think the last number at USA games was more than 50% of the athletes weren't wearing the right size shoe. So the premise behind this is how is an athlete supposed to compete at their best if their shoes are too small? How are they supposed to compete at their best if they don't have sport goggles and their glasses are sliding off their face while they're trying to you know, play basketball? So it's, it's a, a health arm of the organization that is geared to making our athletes be able to compete at a higher level, but really is just improving their lives. Wow, that's amazing. And you're an employer too. I, yeah. I know... One of Sarah's peers was hired um, at our local chapter to do social media for, mm-hmm. uh, and I just love that Special Olympics is just, you know, really engaged in all these different efforts. So that is so cool. Yeah, yeah. So we have we have a couple athletes that work on our local organizing committee, and it was really important to us not to just have our athletes as receptionists at the desk greeting people when they come in. Um, they're the best at it. They're the best at greeting people when they come into the office, but they have so many more skills. So we actually have um, two athletes. They're a, they're a married couple, one and works with our marketing team and does a lot of content development and a lot of outreach to people who have uh, donated either money or skills. And then uh, her husband, Donald, is actually a, a logistics guru. He knows how to put stuff together, to move stuff, to organize it. So we've used their skills to help make us better as an organization. And the other piece of that is as we're working in our office every single day, we have a visible constant reminder of our motivation and it's our athletes. So um, lots of programs are employing athletes. And um, that's another legacy piece that we hope to have be an outcome of this game is a lot of our corporate sponsors. We don't just want to have them give us funds and we give them some awareness, but we want them to understand that their companies, which in a lot of cases are massive billion dollar companies could become employers for our athletes and help open their minds to uh, give our athletes some opportunities that they might not have considered before. That's, that's great to hear. Um, we're coming towards the end of our time and I need to thank, you know, uh, our supporters, Barclays Access, Microlink and, and, and MyClearTech for helping keep us on air, keep us captioned, et cetera. But, but w- one final question, and that is, you know, you, you, we've talked about the Special Olympics being for people with intellectual disabilities and, and the language and classifications of disabilities vary widely um, depending on culture and countries that you're in. So, so, so you know, I'm someone with dyslexia and ADHD. We, we would call them specific learning difficulties. Would I qualify? Um, you know, or, or, or is it... People that that have more profound mm-hmm. learning disabilities, which are, um, you know, what we what we would refer to as LD versus SEN, which is special educational needs. Mm-hmm. Where where's the line drawn? Because I know that that in the Paralympic world, the the, the whole classification system is is pretty complex. Yep. Is it the same yeah. for Special Olympics? That's a great question. And and previously, Special Olympics has been around for, uh, they celebrated their 50th year anniversary, I think, two years ago or a year and a half ago. It's been around for 50 years, and that has changed a lot over time, which I think is something that had to happen because we are constantly learning um, so much more about this population. But originally, there was an IQ score, and that was the, uh, this was a long time ago, that was the qualification. 
And then uh, very quickly, the organization learned that there are, there are some people who do not fall under a certain IQ level that have intellectual disabilities and could completely benefit from what we're offering. So that has been taken out completely. And really all that uh, is required for an athlete to be considered an athlete within Special Olympics is a healthcare professional has to deem that they have an intellectual disability. And that, as you mentioned, is different in every country, but uh, it's something that that is the qualification. And as I mentioned before, one of the really the, the best things about my job when I was with Special Olympics Florida, I was talking to a lot of families on the phones. They were calling to learn what we do. And uh, everybody has a place to be able to compete, not just to be involved, but to be able to compete within Special Olympics. So um, sometimes I would have people call who have a child with a physical disability and not an intellectual disability. And they didn't know a lot about our organization and wanted them to compete. And the really cool thing was the answer wasn't no, your child doesn't have a place in our organization. It was simply, yes, your child can compete as a unified partner. So they become the person without intellectual disabilities on a unified team. So it truly is an organization that doesn't just talk about inclusion. Uh, it, it is the most inclusive organization that I've ever uh, been a part of because everybody can come and compete and, and participate in whatever way they think is best for them. That's fantastic. Bravo. 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 So thank you very much, Megan. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, and we look forward to you joining us on Twitter on Tuesday. Yes, I look forward to it, for sure.